Open your Bibles <coughs> to the book of Romans and chapter number 8. Romans and chapter number 8 as we read what you will recognize as a familiar passage of Scripture. <coughs> Paul writing to believers in Rome. Romans 8, I want to start in verse number 31. You follow as I read the remaining part of this chapter. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse number 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want to preach with this title. I only got one title, sorry. <laughs> God's unchanging eternal love. God's unchanging eternal love. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, just open our hearts to what you have for us. And if you speak to us, which I'm confident you will, I pray we would uh, respond. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Every one of us have certain attributes that to a great degree define uh, who you are, how you act, your, your personality. So, for instance, you know someone that you would describe if just as with one word, you would say, well, that person is funny or that person is kind. Uh, that person is angry. That person is patient. That person is goofy. Uh, that person is clumsy. Uh, that person is hard headed. That person's lazy. That person is sloppy. That person's happy. That person's serious. That person's caring. That person is smart. Now that person is quirky. That person's quiet. That person's loud. That person is shy. That person's outgoing. That person is loving. And the list could go on and on. If someone were to describe you, what one word description might they use? I hope it would be something positive. And maybe even if the fruit of the Spirit were part of that description, that would be a good thing. Think of this. If we were to describe our Heavenly Father... Using this same thought, how would you describe him? 
If you know him, and I hope you know him, you would have a hard time describing him with one word or one attribute. The Bible gives us many, many attributes, that, many descriptions of God that help us understand who he is. Can I give you some for instances? Is that okay? For instance, the Bible says God is holy. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth the eternity, whose name is holy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And it, above it stood the seraphims, and each had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth. Is full of his glory. And the four beasts each had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Think of just that one attribute. God is holy to agree that to a degree that we can't really understand. He's not like us. He's separate from us. And we can maybe only begin to scratch the surface of, our, of his holiness with our finite minds and our finite tongues to describe this holy God. God's holy. How about this? He is righteous. First John, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous, Revelation 16, and I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. God just doesn't do righteous things. It's not just the things he does are righteous. Everything about him is righteous. He can be nothing but righteous. He's holy and he's righteous. How about this? He's immutable. He doesn't change. Malachi 3, for I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not that God just does not change. He cannot change. His very nature is unchangeable. Always and forever he will be the same. Think of these. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's faithful. He's just. He's good. He's wise. He's merciful. He's gracious. And could we not go on and on for hours describing with just my limited mind, my limited vocabulary to describe to you the attributes of our God? Now, we, you, have a little bit of many different attributes. And while you may be predominantly one, funny, goofy, clumsy, whatever, we're not wholly one single attribute. Nor, think of this, nor do any of us embody all there could be of one particular attribute. For instance, no one. No one on the face of the earth is always good or always kind or always patient. 
or nor are they always kind or good as patient as someone could be. Now, hopefully as believers, we would in our lives show the work of the Holy Spirit through this fruit of the Spirit. We, we use that term, the fruit of the Spirit. Hopefully we would display that, but we are all flesh. We're all on the potter's wheel. We're all trying to be more like his son. And you may know someone that you say, boy, that person is kind. But the truth is they're not kind 100% of the time. And when they are kind, they aren't the epitome of kindness. There is greater kindness than the kindest person has ever reached. Think of that. The same is true for all equalities that we may have. We are trying. We're on the road. We're allowing God's to work on us. And someday when we're in his presence, we're going to be uh, all we could be. Paul put it this way, not as though I had already attained. I'm not there yet. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. I'm on that road, but God is not like us. Think of this, God completely and absolutely encompasses all of his attributes. God is 100% holy. God is 100% righteous. God is 100% good. God is 100% of any of the attributes that are listed in scripture that are given. God is 100% of those. Not only that, he displays those attributes 100% of the time to the utmost. There is no, think of this, there's no level of any of his attributes that he has not attained. No one could be possibly more holy than God. He defines holiness. God defines justice. God defines mercy and so on. There is no greater holiness than God. There is no greater righteousness than God and on and on and on. So every good quality that you could think is expressed by him. He is at once the ultimate limit of all his attributes and then he holds them in a scope that is unlimited. God just isn't a God of grace. He is grace. He isn't just a God of justice. He is justice. He's not just a God of goodness. He is goodness. He's not just a God of faithfulness. He is faithfulness. He is all that we could possibly imagine. And he goes far beyond our ability to even define those qualities in a way that our feeble minds can possibly grasp. Now, that being said, I said all that to say this. If the attributes and characteristics of God are beyond our ability to comprehend and are at the highest level possible, the very definition of those traits. That must therefore include one very important one. God is love. Now I want to ask you a question. 
Don't answer out loud. (laughs) Are we afraid to talk about God's love? Are we sometimes afraid that if I talk about God's love, somehow I'll tell people that his love is bigger than it actually is? And since I'm on that subject, and since you give me permission, independent fundamental Baptists we are, do we sometimes fear that if I talk too much about the love of God, I may possibly lead people to believing that God actually loves them? And not just any kind of love. Remember his attributes, a love that's beyond my capacity to grasp or explain. Think of this. Is it even possible to talk too much about God's love? Well, someone might say, well, if that was the only attribute that you talked about, about God, that would, if that's all you dwelled on, that was the only attribute, then that would be possible to talk too much about it. And really the same would be true about any of his attributes. Don't just talk about one in exclusion of the others. To overemphasize, I suppose, any one of his attributes would be doing a disservice to God. And then in turn to us. But the truth is, God is love. He loves And he loves in a way, I don't even know if we could ever, enough books could be written to describe his love. And if we spent all night trying to somehow get out enough English words so that we could all understand it, I still don't think we would. Because God is love. Well, how do I know? Before I even get into the text, how do I know God loves How do I know God is love? And where do I find out this information? Well, first of all, I know God's a God of love and God is love because the Bible directly directly tells us that he is love. 1 John 4, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. For God so loved the world. Did you know that God's love, God exclaims or proclaims his love for us in the Bible 310 times in 280 verses? And if you grew up in Sunday school, some of your earliest memories go like this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. John the Apostle got a glimpse of God's love and he wrote these words and you almost get the feeling he couldn't, he he just didn't have enough words and he just put it this way. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. The Bible tells us it's in black and white. We know he loves How about this? We know God is love because he demonstrated it. 
Way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible teaches us that man fell. He sinned. He disobeyed. He broke God's command. But even then, God's love is shown. And he offered forgiveness and the promise of a coming Savior. And God showed his love. He called Abraham and he chose a people for himself through which he would bless the world and show his love through the coming Messiah. God sent his people prophets and he pleaded with his people to return to him, the God that loved them. And finally, if we could put it this way, in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, he showed us his love wrapped in swaddling clothes. Think of it. That was God's love walking and talking with men. That was God's love teaching and delivering and healing. That was God's love bleeding and dying on a cross. I'm telling you, God's love shouts to us from every page of this book. God's love paints masterpieces so us, for us to see his works of creation. God's love gives us families and friends. Can you imagine life without them? God's love comes to us freely. He says, come to him freely with our requests. God's love brings us together in a local church where we can fellowship and learn and grow. And God's love gives us grace in times of pain. And God's love gives us peace in times of distress. And God's love gives us joy in times of sorrow. God's love gives us forgiveness for our sin. God's love blesses us when we don't deserve it, which is all the time. God's love gives us encouragement when we're down. And think of this, in the end, God's love gives us eternity with him. Underpinning everything is his love. Paul writes to these believers in Rome. He had yet to visit Rome. Hadn't been there yet. Swiss Bible commentator Frederick Godet said this about this book, Romans. He called it the cathedral of the Christian faith. So while in Corinth, Paul uh, learned that Phoebe was going to uh, visit Rome and he set out to write this letter to those believers that she would deliver on his behalf. Scholar Joseph Renan wrote this. When Phoebe sailed away from Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. That's Romans. And we turn our attention to chapter eight. This chapter, it, I'm just telling you, it's captivated believers for centuries since Paul penned these words. Notice verse number 18. I reckon the sufferings of this present time. I wonder what he's talking about. What sufferings could Paul be talking about? And would those sufferings that he mentions in verse 18 and explains further as we get on into this chapter, would those sufferings be so severe? Would they be so bad that a believer would even doubt the love of God? The simple answer is this. A man named Nero would take control of the Roman Empire in about five years from the writing of this epistle. 
and believers would soon be persecuted and martyred and by the thousands. And as we read verses 31 and following, maybe that makes it a little more meaningful. Verse 31 and verse number 32, he said, who can be against us? God gave us his son. Verse 33, who could possibly charge us? God has justified us. Verse 34, who could, who could condemn us? Christ is making intercession for us. And this question, simple, but important question. And I want you to really think this through. Can God's love be interrupted, halted, paused, lessened, diminished, or in any way changed or altered? Can we somehow be separated from God's love? Verse number 38 and 39, he talks about that. Can anything separate us from his love? Is there a person, is there a thing, is there a circumstance that could somehow put space between you and the love of God? Is the love of God at the same level as his holiness or his righteousness or his omniscience or all the other attributes that we talk about often? Can his love be made lesser or greater by any force on earth? He starts to answer that question. He says, first, could death do it? I am persuaded, he says in verse number 38, that neither death. Because death separates. How many have been separated because of the death of someone you love? It separates. It's our last enemy. We do everything we possibly can to postpone or avoid death. Everyone in this room has been separated from someone you love by death. Can I tell you this? God's love is bigger than death. Death is no match for him. The Bible says he was victorious over death. And through his victory, death can never, ever separate us from him. And the separation that comes from death that we experience now is only temporary because of Christ and his love one day will be reunited with our loved ones who died in Christ and we'll be able to say with the apostle these words, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death is no match for the love of God, he said. What about life? Neither death nor life. Because life is full of trouble. Have you ever lived life? It's got problems. There's trial and there's pain and there's suffering. And it's possible. It's possible for someone to face something that's so tough or severe or hard that they may even think that God has forgotten. That he's unaware. He doesn't care. He stopped loving. The psalmist felt it. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? 
David wrote those words. The truth is this, nothing will come your way in life, regardless how hard it may be, that will come between you and his love. That's his promise. God's love never leaves us when we're in a valley. Well, if not death or life in verse number 38, how about this? How about angels? If you read into that, you study what other men have said, you'll, you'll come to this conclusion. I think that he's specifically talking about what we would call demons, fallen angels. Who would like nothing better, can you imagine, than to somehow separate believers from the love of God. And there is, no doubt, great power in this unseen world around us. The Bible records that one angel whose name is not mentioned was sent by God to protect his people Israel and in one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Michael himself is referred to as an archangel. He's the only angel with that title, which means chief angel. And as powerful as we can imagine he is, when he disputed with the devil, he said, the Lord rebuke you. As powerful as these unseen angels, these demons may be. Can I tell you, they can't separate us from his love. And knowing that, Knowing those devils who know that they can't separate us from his love in reality, will they not whisper in our ear, God doesn't love you? If he loved you, you wouldn't face these trials. If he loved you, you wouldn't face this heartbreak. If he loved you, you'd never be sick or broke or unhappy. Can I tell you, God's love is greater than the angels. If, if not death, nor life, nor angels, what about principalities and powers that always seem to go together in Scripture? Principalities and powers, talking about the rulers of this world that have power. And over the centuries, they've done their best, have they not, to separate believers from their faith and from their family and from their friends. And no doubt, many of those who, for the first time, are reading these words that Paul wrote would face those powers. Have you heard of Polycarp? Polycarp from Smyrna, who was brought to Christ by John the Apostle. The story goes the Romans are executing any self proclaimed Christian. The pagans are betraying those who knew they knew to be followers of the way. And at the recent executions, the crowd in the arena began to chant, and they chanted for Polycarp's death. Because of his age, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp a final chance to live. He just had to swear by Caesar and say, take away the atheists. Because at that time, Christians were called atheists for refusing to worship the Greek and Roman gods. Polycarp looked at the roaring crowds and gestured to them and proclaimed, take away the atheists. The proconsul continued, swear and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, 86 years I have served him. 
He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him again, swear by the fortune of Caesar. But he replied, since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them. For we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire. He responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched. And you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Do what you want. And we continue to this day. Maybe not to these extremes, but we do, do we not face principalities and powers who do their best to make believers seem like the enemy? Right. And right is wrong. And biblical values are mocked and our children are subjected to all kinds of wickedness through social media and public education and an ever-increasing immoral and wicked society. But don't fear, can I tell you this? God's love is more powerful than principalities and powers. Well, what about this? Nor things present, he said. In other words, today, for us, what are you facing today that's difficult? Well, I got a problem, child. I don't know what to do. My company is going to close. I'm going to lose my job. Everything costs too much. I feel you. I don't know. My budget's really getting squeezed. There's trouble. There's heartbreaks, problems, questions. And there's something else in the present. You're in the present. Your sin, that's now. Your lack of faith, that's now. Your disobedience, that's now. Your rebellion, that's now. The times you doubt, the times you don't trust, the times you just can't believe, all that's in the present. God's love's bigger than your present. Well, okay, but what about this? What about the future? The unknown. How can I be sure that God will love me tomorrow? Tomorrow is a question. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Can you imagine that for those believers who are reading for the first time these words, maybe verse 35 describes their future. Nero very soon is going to blame Christians for burning Rome. And believers will be burned, crucified, fight wild beasts for sport. Would God's love be there? Would God's love be there tomorrow if you get that phone call that you've always dreaded? Will God's love be there tomorrow when the doctor's report isn't what you hoped it would be? 
Will God's love be there tomorrow when your plans or your dreams aren't fulfilled? Will God's love be there still tomorrow? Can I tell you this? We don't know the future. I don't know anything about tomorrow. I have no idea what it holds, but I'm glad. Aren't you glad we know the one who holds it right there? And his love is bigger than my future. Oh, yeah, but what about this? Height. Height. Up. John Phillips wrote this. Can height or depth separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? No, because he has plumbed the deepest depth for us and scaled the highest height and is enthroned yonder in the highest pinnacle of glory. Well, what about, what about, what about this? What about he puts like he can't think of anything else. What about any creature? Just any other creature. It's not death and it's not life can't get in the way of his love and angels and principalities and powers and things present and things to come or height nor death. Just any other creature. This takes in the whole encompasses the whole universe of created beings in heaven and in earth and in the sea. And he just most strongly expresses for us the inseparableness of the saints from the love of God. No creature whatsoever. Nothing in the entire universe can come between you and his love. Think of it. Who or what is powerful enough? To somehow remove you from his love. To somehow make God turn from you. Even in the slightest modify his love for you. No, nothing now, nothing ever could do such. And all that makes me ask this question. Why? Why? Why, why this great love? What did we do to deserve a love that would never be changed under any circumstance or any time or by anyone living or dead? Did God see some inward goodness? No, because you're not good. Did, did God see my good works? No, because it's not about any works of righteousness. Did God somehow see your talent or ability or personality? No, because anything we do or have is from him. Does God see me as lovable? <laughs> no, because we're not. Why? Why then this love? God doesn't love me because he finds in me something adorable, something lovable. In fact, he probably looks at me and he looks at you and doesn't find much to love at all. God loves me because it is the character of God to love because God is love. Listen to Barnes. He is the bond, the connecting link. It was caused by his mediation. It is secured by his influence. It is in and through him and him alone that people love God. There is no true love of God, which is not produced by the work of Christ. There is no man who truly loves the Father who does not do it in and by the Son. It is because of him. Think of this. Nothing can get in the way of his love. Nothing can come between us and his love. Nothing can even move the needle a little bit of God's love. 
God is love. He doesn't just love like you and I love. He is love. And his love for us can't be altered one way or another. And I'm afraid what happens is this. We somehow have picked up along the way the idea this. If I can do something that's going to make God love me more. And on the other hand, I could, if I'm not careful, do something that would make God love me less. As if his love for me is based on my own merits, my own goodness or my own service or my own dedication. And if I see an obvious sinner driving down the road and I see someone and it's obvious they're a sinner. Something in me has this satisfaction. I know that God loves them, but he loves me more. And sometimes if we're not careful, we'll compare ourselves with other believers. I do more than them. God loves me more. I work harder than them. God loves me more. I serve more. I give more. I read my Bible more. I pray more. I'm more faithful. So God must love me more. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the man-made gods of this world, you know, the false gods in Old Testament times to the Greek gods and, and, and the Roman gods all the way up to the modern Eastern religions and their gods, those gods are subject to the same uh, ups and downs as we. In other words, their love comes and goes based on the actions of the subjects. So the worshiper of those false gods, they're constantly striving to please uh, their God and gain favor and gain blessing and, and gain love. But our God, the one true God, is love. And his love cannot be changed by anything you and I might or might not do. Whoa, good. I'm glad because seeing that so, I'm just going to live my life any way I please, knowing that his love for me will never change. And there may be those that take that view, but certainly those of us who understand where we were when God's love found us, we would never take that view. The point is this, God's love for you is unchangeable. God's love is not for you is not based on you or your performance or lack thereof. Tozer wrote this, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nevertheless, he is the one that loves you most. God's love for you is based on who he is. And therefore, we can be assured that absolutely nothing can separate us from that love. Not death. Not anything in life. No angel, regardless how powerful. No government. Nothing now, nothing in the future. Nothing above, nothing beneath. No person or any other creature in heaven or in earth that ever has been or will be could separate you from his love. <coughs> Knowing all that, as his children, would we not love him and serve him and obey him and trust him 
with all of our being. The hymn writer, Frederick Lehman, was at a camp meeting in a Midwestern state. And he heard an evangelist end his message by quoting what became the third stanza of one of Lehman's hymns. The preacher said that these lines had been found penciled on the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum after he had been carried to his grave. The assumption was that this inmate had scratched out the words in moments of sanity. The profound depths of the portion moved Layman to preserve the words for future generations. <clears throat> that man wrote this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? Were the sky a parchment made? For every stalk on earth a quill, every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Amen. Sing that chorus with me. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever Whatever you face today, whatever you may face tomorrow, God's love is bigger. And he loves you with an unchanging, eternal love. Let's bow. A time of invitation. Maybe God spoke to you. Maybe you're facing something no one knows about but you. Maybe you've even begun to doubt. God, do you really love me? If you love me, why this? Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. Nothing has the power. Nothing is bigger than God's love. We're going to have a time of invitation. If God spoke to you and you want to respond where you are in your pew or come to the altar. God spoken to you. I encourage you to respond. Heavenly Father. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that your word. Helps us get a glimpse of the love of God. A love that's greater than we can understand. And a love bigger than anything we would possibly face now or in the future. So thankful for your love. Right in this room, there could be people who are dealing with a difficult circumstance, no doubt. Would you just tonight assure them of your love? That there you, you won't leave, abandon them in the darkness. That your love for them is bigger, it's greater, it's more powerful than anything they would possibly face on this earth. Thank you for your word. 
Are you speaking to hearts? I pray that we are responding in Jesus' name. Amen.